Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, hello and welcome to New Books and Art for the New Books Network. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and it's my pleasure today to interview Adair Rounthwaite, who is the author of Asking the Audience Participatory Art in 1980s New York, which is published by the University of Minnesota Press, very current 2017. Adair, welcome to the show, and I would like you to Tell the audience how you got interested in the 1980s and the participatory arts and anything else that might help us understand your research background. Great, thanks. Hi, Kirsten. Um, So I am a, a historian of contemporary art. I currently work at the University of Washington in Seattle. And this book started as a dissertation project in 2010 when I was working on my PhD at the University of Minnesota. And um, I guess that I actually chose the topic of audience participation in contemporary art before I chose the 1980s as a decade. And for one reason or another, um, participatory art is something that I have been interested in since my second year in college. I was just really interested in these practices from early on. And I think that part of what fascinated me about them is the way that in audience participation, there is no artwork that can be separated from audience experiences But at the same time, every audience member is going to have a a different experience. And those experiences will just differ based on people's idiosyncratic personality variety, but also on factors like gender and class and race that condition how we interact with the world. So it was really initially that interest in audience participation that led me down this route. And I guess in terms of my interest in the 1980s, I have a sort of inherent fascination with this decade because I was born in 1983. And so it was, I think a lot of people are kind of interested in these historical moments that they experience as children, but not as adults and as trying to go back and understand those times more deeply. So I think that that's part of it. But I was also um, interested in this decade as a pivot between um, contemporary art as we conceive it in this moment and the types of practice that came before that. I was also interested in um, what happened with live art in the 1980s because we really think about the 19. Um, 70s and also to a certain extent the the 60s before that as being decades that we associate with the development of live art in 
the 20th century. So I was really fascinated with um, the question of what happened to live art in the 80s and in whether um, audience participation was one of the most important kinds of live art in that decade or was becoming an important kind of live art in that decade um, in addition to more um, what we more typically consider to be performance practices. This is really powerful, I think, what you're saying about a personal interest, your own position that you are a child in the 80s, and then this question of the live art. And I'm wondering um, how you connected um, these goings-on at the DIA Art Foundation with your questions that drive the project. What led you to hone in on DIA in particular? Right. Well, I actually initially honed in on um, the particular projects that the book treats by group material and Martha Rossler before I kind of got to the institutional interest in DIA. And this came at a moment when I was looking around for a dissertation project. And I'd originally thought that I was going to do a project where I set up a conceptual framework for talking about audience participation um, and then chose four different case studies in contemporary global art. But then I really quickly realized that there was uh, a pretty strong limitation of a project like that in the sense that if it was held together by my kind of concept making activity and not by looking at a particular historical moment, that I wouldn't be able to get at the question of how um, how the art practices interact with the texture of their historical context in a detailed way. And that's part of what I was really interested in. And I came, I'd seen a number of different references to these group material and Martha Rossler projects. So group materials, um, democracy and Martha Rossler's If You Lived Here, both of which made up a single um, programming year at the Dia Art Foundation, stretching from fall 1988 to spring 1989. Um, these projects were conceived together, and they both consisted of changing exhibitions accompanied by um, so-called town hall meetings. So these big events where the artists invited the public to just come and talk about the issues that were being dealt with in the exhibitions. And this was a really important way in these projects of trying to bring um, politicized art practice closer to life, closer to actual, actual political activity, closer um, to contemporary concerns that these artists believe are really pressing in this moment. And um, these projects are referenced a fair amount in contemporary art history. And I sort of run across a number of different references to them, um, which alluded to the importance of the projects. But then when I kind of began to dig, um, I found that there were these two books published by Bay Press in collaboration with the Dia Art Foundation that were sort of, um, they're not catalogs, but they were essentially published uh, in lieu of catalogs. Uh, so they're collections of writings 
that are pertinent to these topics and transcripts of the discussions. So we had these books as uh, a product of this moment that the artists worked on in collaboration with Dia. Um, but I found that there wasn't really substantive scholarly digging into um, the question of what exactly these projects were about and what they did. And I'm always really fascinated um, with sort of moments in, in historical discourse like that, where people talk about something as if we all know what it is and we all know why it's important and what it did. Um, but when you then start looking for the substantiation of that, you can't really find it. And I think that that is always a fantastic opportunity for historians because it's um, just gives you an opportunity to look more closely to really um, go deep into the, the texture and the paradoxes of a particular example and sort of look at the building blocks on which the discourse constructs itself. Um, so I came to these projects that way and then I um, went about figuring out whether there was enough archival material remaining from the projects for me to do a whole dissertation about them and it seemed like there was. And then um, quickly as I began to engage with the material, I discovered that in addition to this story about politicized art in New York in the 1980s and um, how artists were trying to um, trying to connect art making with the political and make that responsive to things that were changing in the city and in the country. In addition to that story, there was also the story about the Dia Art Foundation and why they had become interested in these projects, um, in the fact that in a number of the critical accounts that existed about the projects from the time that they were created, people talk about the sort of strange mismatch between the politicization of these projects and um, the projects that Dia hosted before, which are, um, as you might be familiar with, um, largely minimalist projects um, of a uh, often monumental nature or things like um, Walter DiMaria's earth room um, that needed special resources or special spaces in order to exist. So I got curious about that mismatch and about the transition that might have led to it. Um, and it's sort of that curiosity that then led me to dig deeper into the question of what was going on with Dia at, um, at an institutional level in this moment. Um, to think about their identity transition as an arts organization and so to begin to think about audience participation as something in which both institutions and artists um, leftist artists in this moment could be invested i think that you're there's an intricate argument in the book bringing together the different interests, the, like you just said, the institution, the artist, the audience. But you mentioned um, just a few moments ago this how interesting it is to work with archival materials, transcripts, and to try to sort of, sort of bolster all this thick description with concept. And when reading the book, 
it's such a nicely balanced story of the individual artist's concerns, the very sometimes dramatic town hall commentary, and then the politics of the institution. That's not an easy kind of triad to balance. And I wondered, um, because you got to spend so much time with archival materials and with interviewing, of all of the materials, which was your favorite to work with? Was it, you know, going to to hear tapes or to read transcripts? Was there something that pulled you more into the project? That's a really nice question. I mean, I would have to say that it's probably the, the tapes and also the photographs that I spend a lot of time with, um, particularly in Chapter 3. I mean, a big investment, as you probably saw in the book, is in this question of how to recover participation historically. So audience participation happens, but we often don't know that much about it, or we as art historians spend more time thinking and talking about artists and why they decided to have people participate than what actually happened in the process of participation. And it's specifically that process that I wanted to get at in order to let me um, think about how that might have met the artist's goals and expectations or not, how it might have fulfilled Dia's goals for the projects or not. And it was really these kinds of um, archival materials that let me do that. So... um, As far as I know, there hadn't been a lot of research of live art done prior to this using audio as a source. And um, I was really excited when I found out that the Dia Art Foundation still had the original cassette tapes that were um, made of these town hall meeting discussions. And the reason that they'd made the tapes was so that they could transcribe the conversations and use that as material for the book. Um, And so the transcripts are in the books, but in a very, very edited form, like down to a fraction of what actually goes on in the conversations. And that's just because of the constraint of length. But Moreover, um, what I discovered when I began to listen to the tapes is there was so much emotional and interpersonal content that you get from listening to the audio recordings, from listening to just people's tone of voice, um, the way that they emphasize their words. You really um, get much more of a sense of the, the space that these projects created by listening to the audio recordings than you do by reading the transcripts. So I would say that was a pretty magical experience, um, especially because I actually listened to these from the original audio tapes. So there was almost a sense of kind of physical contact between me and the sound that I was hearing, um, you know, sitting in the DR Foundation's New York office in January 2011, and um, these historical moments that I was curious about. And in terms of the photographs, I became interested in those, again, probably out of seeing a a disciplinary neglect of these kinds of images relative to 
participation. And I think that there's a reason why people haven't really thought about photographs of participation as being too important. Um, You know, they often don't look very interesting. They don't have what we typically associate with aesthetic properties. Um, They look more like things that were made to um, to just document an event than um, than rich documents in some cases that really deserve a lot of focus. Um, but I became interested in them particularly for ex- exactly for that reason. And I got interested in how um, in treating these images like they're unimportant, like they're almost just kind of invisible, like they'll show us something um about a project, but that that's something that is insufficient in and of itself that needs to be bolstered by um, contextual information, by um, analysis. In making these images kind of transparent, uh, art history had really ignored the kind of meaning-making that goes on in them. And I mean, I fundamentally believe that they're... um, and this is something you know that we also see elaborated really beautifully in the work of Martha Rossler, that there is no non-ideological photograph. A photograph always has ideology. It's always created in a certain um, network of power relationships. And I believe that the investments that lead to the creation of um, photographic documents of participation which are investments that come from the artists, from the sponsoring art organization or institution, and even from um, audience members themselves, are things that are sometimes actually visible in the images themselves. So particularly fascinating to me in um, this respect were the images of the participation of Homeward Bound, which was um, an activist organization of people um, who were dealing with homelessness, advocating for homelessness, for issues concerning homelessness, um, who participated in um, in Rossler's project. And I found two of these images in the archives of the Dia Art Foundation. Um, of the group posed behind their um, their desk that they had in one of the installations for the projects. And I just became really fascinated in with these images and in um, how they communicated the question of the group's political agency, how they represented them as having political power and how they represented the project's role um, in that agency. And then I also um, came across documents in Rossler's archive uh, of of material for the project that was shown um, in the documentation show, If You Lived Here Still. Um, I came across uh, a correspondence between her and Charles Wright, who is the director of the Dia Art Foundation at this point, that dated from the moment when they were working on the books for the projects after the projects were completed. And um, Rossler was expressing displeasure about the fact that um, certain images of Homeward Bound had been included in the book and that others of them posed behind their desk had not. 
And so I put together the pieces and realized that these images that I'd found were the ones that she wanted to have included, which made me even more curious about them and then led to um, the analysis that's the focus of chapter three of the book of um, the different investments that went into those images and into particularly the importance of the pose in um, expressing the agency of the activists and their participation in the project. I think that this this part of the conversation today, plus the way this is handled in the book, really opens up the issue you mentioned of no photograph is neutral, even something we might sort of throw away as just some kind of document. Uh, we don't know who those people are anymore. What are they doing in the photograph? And it, it brings me to a question of theatricality. I, I know you use this um, word, the theatricality theme or the theme of theatricality. And I'm wondering if you might tell the audience a little bit more about the installation itself and the programming uh -huh. around the installation that we are now learning about more from photographs and things that you have presented in the book. Do you mean specifically the the homeless installation? Yes. Or, or okay. let's go with that just so I want the listeners to understand how fascinating these these live art um, performances and installations are or were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they maybe I can just give it an overall description yes. initially so people get a, an image of what we're looking at. So these um, were exhibitions that were held in the Wooster Street Gallery owned by the Dia Art Foundation um, at this point in the 1980s. So it's, I mean, I have been by this space a few years ago. It's now, or it was when I went by it, a sort of um, upper end furniture store. Mm. And so you can get a sense from that of the, the scale. This is a large um, gallery space that has storefront windows um, to the street in um, in Soho, but it's by no means a, a gigantic space. So it's not, um, it still has a sort of room-sized quality to it. And group material was the first in the, the sequence of the projects. And they developed this method or this strategy of having themed shows where um, in the style that was typical for how group material worked, um, they would create, they would curate a show with artworks of various contemporary artists that responded to a particular theme. And then they would also coordinate other aspects of um, the appearance of the gallery to support that theme. So I think that one of the most visually, I guess I would say, juicy examples among group, group material shows um, was Education and Democracy, which was the first installment of their four exhibitions. And um, for this show, they painted the walls of the gallery black, like a blackboard, and then had some chalk writings on the walls that were sort of partially erased, but also visible in places. 
and then hung a, a selection of works by a diverse group of contemporary artists and also by school children who participated in the project all over these walls um, and hung them salon style, so also at different heights on the walls. Um, and then in the middle of the space is uh, a formation of school desks where audience members could actually go and sit. So um, this is a, a gallery show that doesn't have any participation. It doesn't doesn't have any sorry. It doesn't have any perf- overt performance going on in it, but it implies a kind of performative activity on the part of the audience because they come in. They sit in the school desks. They're invited into this space as people whose activity of looking and making their way around the space gives it meaning. Um, And then the town hall in um, another space that Dia owned that was actually used as a dance studio that interestingly had served as um, as a mosque for the founders of Dia who were not um, directly running the organization anymore at this point, but who um, had initially established it in the 1970s. So these two spaces were um, close to each other in the city, but they weren't, these things weren't happening in the same space. And then the, um, the town hall meetings didn't have any sort of overtly aesthetic staging. Um, but what I argue in the book is that um, because they were included in the projects as art, because the artists saw them as integral to the projects and actually a part of the artwork itself, that in those, in those cases, the experience of being with other people in a room and listening to them and speaking and experiencing the emotional um, dynamics germane to that particular situation, that that is a kind of aesthetic activity that we can treat as such when we look at the the historical record. So I'm really interested in um, the kinds of meaning creation that happened through the audience's involvement with each other in that space. And then in terms of Rossler's shows, she um, used the same format that group material had established. Um, the, the shows in her case had a somewhat fuller and more freeform appearance to them and also made a lot of use of print materials and also of video material, which was um, a very important part of her practice um, at this point and ongoingly and which she considered to have a, a particularly urgent political connection to issues of gentrification and homelessness that her project treated. So um, in, yeah, in, in those shows, uh, there were, yeah, there were, there were videos included in the shows. And then um, in one of the exhibitions, Uh, she created uh, or facilitated the creation of an office in the gallery that could be used by um, the activist organization Homeward Bound. And there were initially conversations about whether the members of that group would be able to sleep 
in the gallery for the duration of the show. So actually use it as housing in uh, a politicized appropriation of high-end real estate for the needs of um, people dealing with homelessness. But due to various uh, difficulties with DIA and difficulties between DIA and their landlord, they weren't actually able to, to use the gallery to sleep in. But there were beds that had initially been put there that remained in place. And um, what I argue is that based on my um, based on interviews I did and the extent to which I could find out about how Homeward Bound were actually using that space, they were not there for most of the time that the gallery was open. So most visitors to the gallery would have encountered the space empty, but seen this office set up for them to do their work um, and seen these beds. And um, I argue that even in the absence of the group, that that setup, which essentially looks like a theatrical set, um, functioned as a way of posing questions about um, about the kind of activity that might take place there, about the, the use of the space, about the agency of this group, um, and about their, their presence and absence and their collaboration in the show. I find this part, this element of your research and, and the presentation of it in the book really notable for just considering in a way, some, let's say, new definitions of what constitutes the participatory aspect. And I'm also wondering about the audience and who attended um, or who visited the gallery and who came, if it was another type of um, exhibition with a town hall, who was coming and um, the reality that you note in the book of the self-selecting audience who might be coming. To, uh -huh. to be a part of these events or these exhibitions? Yeah, well, I think that that really varied per segment of the show. So um, dem Democracy group, group Materials Democracy had four shows as a part of it, which dealt with um, education, with um electoral politics with what they called um, cultural participation, so sort of forms of everyday culture in which we're involved, and then with the AIDS crisis. Um, and then Rossler's project, as I mentioned, dealt with concerns of homelessness and um, gentrification and city planning. And I think that each of these shows um, and the town hall meetings that accompanied them had different audiences who were um, interested in those particular issues. At the same time, um, one of the reasons that Group Material was interested in working with DIA is that um, the storefront gallery on Wooster Street, which just let people walk in who are walking by, um, got this kind of passerby audience. So I think that there would have been people who just have wandered into the gallery who had maybe been there before and decided to check out what was there. There were people who were very much a part of um, 
New York's politicized art scene at this moment. And then as I discussed, there are these sort of tailored audiences for each part of the project. And I talk about that in particular in chapter four, which is the the chapter that talks about um, group materials address of AIDS in this project and also in their subsequent AIDS timeline. Um, Because from what I learned about that project, there were a lot of many, many people who were involved in ACT UP who were highly informed and opinionated about the AIDS crisis and about the kinds of aesthetic and political responses that it necessitated who came to that show and expressed their opinions. And the reason that's important is that just to note that you're not getting a a neutral audience, that the project isn't something that just um, brings to the audience new information about something that they're strangers to or just sort of incites them to have greater political consciousness, which is how... um, contemporary art often gets talked about. Instead, it was one attempt to represent issues surrounding AIDS that had to contend with the opinions and support and disagreement of a whole cohort of people who had very strong feelings about that issue. Um, And so what I'm curious about in, in that chapter in particular is the question of how the audience's existing feelings and existing expertise uh, had an impact on the dynamics of the contemporary artwork. Um, because the question about how contemporary art can shape um, audience emotion is something that got talked about a lot around the time of the AIDS crisis, particularly, um, for example, by, by Douglas Crimp. But I'm kind of looking at that at the same time as I examine the, the inverse. So how in this format where art is participatory and involves the audience and their input and their feelings, how what's already there for the audience in terms of their association with the subject matter of the project is going to really um, determine what uh, what the outcome of that participatory situation is. And and going along with your very thorough, you know, posing of the questions of audience and then looking at this from different sides, I was very interested when you were speaking about affect theory and how you were using affect theory, in particular the work of Brian Masumi, and maybe you could uh, talk to us a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So I became um, interested in using affect to talk about these projects because Affect essentially provides a way of thinking about the materiality of feelings um, and therefore provides a way of treating the ephemeral process of these events and the, um, the discourse, the interaction, the feelings that they created, um, not just as something immaterial, like as a kind of dematerialization of art, but as a different kind of materiality. So affect provided, thinking about affect provided tools for me 
to consider how what I was looking at was a particular kind of materiality. Um, but as I talk about in um, the introduction, I think that um, a lot of models of affect that are current in the humanities, um, and in particular ones like the work of Brian Masumi, um, that derive from this um, Deleuzian and before that a Spinozist way of thinking, have some limitations in terms of thinking about these particular projects because they so much emphasize um, movements of depersonalization, of moving away from the subject and towards um, flows or dynamics that go beyond subjecthood. And partially because the decade that I'm looking at is the 1980s where questions of um, politics were really tied closely to questions about subjectivity and identity. This is identity politics is a structuring factor of how artists were thinking about political engagement at this moment. You can't just discard questions of um, of subjecthood and of individual experience because that just would be sort of anachronistic relative to this particular historical material. So um, I got curious um, in particular about thinking about this work through um, about this art through the work of. Sylvan, Sylvan Tompkins, who is somebody that um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick and Adam Frank have um, worked hard to recover as a part of humanities discourses on affect. Um, Tompkins was somebody um, who, writing um, in the, the 60s, um, who was interested in, um, in cybernetics, who was a psychologist and who, um, you know, had a, a deep familiarity with Freud's theories, but was trying to, um, to rework them in various ways. And in particular, what Tompkins is interested in is, and this gets a little technical, but how um, affects differ from Freudian drives in um, the sense that they don't necessarily have to have a goal, or they don't only have to have a goal, that they can be more open-ended. And for him, it's this open-endedness, this not totally pointed towards a goal quality that lets us use affect in order to learn about the world. And that was really interesting to me because the idea of learning um, as a, a cognitive and a political activity is really, really central to the projects that I'm looking at. Pedagogy is, um, in terms of the content of group materials exhibition, and just in terms of how these artists approach the question of political art, is absolutely central. So using Tompkins to think about... Um, affect as something that lets us learn, that lets us both pursue goals, but also do something more open-ended than that. Um, Help me attend to the particular qualities of the town hall meetings, and specifically to the way in which they, there are moments in the meetings where people are really pursuing pretty direct goals, like they want to 
um, incite AIDS activism, for example, or educate or correct somebody else's statement about an issue on which they have expertise. But there's also um, a more open-ended play of emotion and um, a quality of um, being immersed in, in feeling and affect itself that is central to the dynamics of the town hall meetings. If you look at them and just expect them to be completely goal-oriented, a lot of those things that happen in terms of the... Um, the affective encounters between people in terms of the conversations don't really make sense. So um, Tompkins helped me think about that simultaneously goal-oriented and open-ended quality um, while trying to consider um, feeling as a type of material in these artworks. I think that you've articulated that so well, and I hope listeners are getting even more interested in the project just in terms of allowing for ambiguity and finding, as you mentioned, you know, theoretical frameworks and scholarly um, apparatus to help us do so, so that the book really gives uh, way or allows for the tensions and the, the human qualities, as you said, and is it a teaching moment? Is it a moment for someone to impose you know, this is the way I understand this situation and how that the um, work that you're doing really allows, I would say, everyone to breathe a little bit and not try. You don't try to tie things up so neatly. So here I am going to pitch you a final question that's going to ask you to do that. Um, what do you see as the future of the participatory in art now or even art that's coming down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think it's got a hugely expansive future. I think that this kind of art practice, which we now see ubiquitously in um, high-profile art exhibition venues and events like um, the Venice Biennale or Documenta or wherever, um, this is only going to get more important. And part of the reason for that is that it creates, as I discuss, this terrain of collaboration between artists with um, political goals and institutions seeking, um, organizations seeking to, um, to create a public profile for themselves, which is responsible, which in the US is deserving of funding. Um, I think that these are projects where many different kinds of people who have different desires from contemporary art can come and find something that's valuable to them. So I think that we're, you know, just going to keep, since the 90s, we've been seeing more and more of these practices. And I think that that's going to keep going for this foreseeable future. Also, because there are, um, and I talk about this a little bit in um, the, con the conclusion to the book, so um, many different aspects of our um, of our networked culture that are becoming collaborative and interactive in other ways, almost to the point where um, we could see this as a new modality of labor um, that displaces older industrial models. I think that there's 
um, something about these practices that really reflects the direction in which work and in which human connection broadly writ is going. So I think that there are just going to be more and more of them. And I guess that what I hope is that people will just continue to do really um, deep, deep digging work about um, particularly about practices in the 20th century that form the precedents for the practices that we see now, because there's just a lot out there. And, you know, I mean, this is one book that's literally about two projects <laughs> in one year. <laughs> and there's just so, so much more work to be done in that respect um, to give us a full global range of um participatory practices in the 20th century. Do you see yourself already having another project in mind that you're working on now or? Yeah, actually I've got something pretty specific that I'm working on. Um, so kind of alongside this project, I got interested in grad school in um, public art in Yugoslavia in the 70s and 80s and I've been studying Croatian for about five years wow. in order to let me do another project that will focus on artists working in Zagreb in the late 70s early 80s um, who held exhibitions in all sorts of different unconventional venues so in city streets um, in a basement gallery using um, a self-published magazine as a venue for showing art. So that is where my next project is going to be focused. And I'm actually going to go there um, to do some more research on that in just a few weeks. This sounds wonderful. And I hope we can have you back on the um, New Books and Art channel to discuss the next chapter here in your research. Thank you. Well, it has been a real pleasure to speak with you today, and um, I encourage all the listeners um, to really to take the time to read the book that you've just heard about, and that the title again is Asking the Audience, Participatory Art in 1980s New York. That's a University of Minnesota Press publication, and today we've been speaking with Adair Rounthwaite, and again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.